What is up, everybody? Thank you for everyone who is joining us today. Uh, we are here. We are filming on a Tuesday. I'm here with Joel Sedecase. Uh, if in case you do not know who he is, he is a Christian thinker, a biblical apologist, a philosopher, and a, the founder of the Think Institute. He's also a former pastor and a current partnering church catalyst with church movements and ministry of Cruz City. So if that wasn't enough in this interview, we're going to be talking about Calvinism and Joel's views as a Calvinist. We're going to be talking a lot about the common objections you'll probably hear to Calvinism, and I'm really looking forward to this. This is going to be a lot of fun. How are you doing, Joel? Man, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining me, man. I'm, I'm excited for this. So just to start off, can you talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, things like that? Yeah, sure. So um, I am a former pastor and uh, f before that, former teacher. I live in Chicago with my family, uh, my wife and I have four little kids and I am a missionary with an organization called Crew. And uh, Crew is primarily known for their college ministry, but uh, they've got many different branches. And one of those branches is called Church Movements. And so my wife and I are missionaries with Crew Church Movements. And under the umbrella of Church move Movements, Zach, we started our organization called the Think Institute. And so uh, the way I spend my time is uh, we have a podcast and a YouTube channel and, and we do Facebook videos. Um, we've got a website and things like that. Uh, we host, we do uh, church trainings in the Christian worldview, evangelism and apologetics. And um, I have a, a cohort of guys that I'm uh, working through in terms of really intense discipleship and strategizing with the goal of taking the city of Chicago for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, our big belief is we believe no Christian should ever get caught flat footed when asked about the Christian message. And so we provide tools and training and tips to equip, encourage and get Christians engaged in explaining, sharing and defending the Christian message. Mm, a lot of good stuff there, man. Uh, before we get into all the fun Calvinistic stuff, I'm curious, uh, we're going through a pretty crazy time right now, especially with all the protests that have, which have turned into some areas as riots. How are things for you in Chicago? What's it like um, right now? Yeah, good question. Thanks for asking. So I actually did a, a podcast episode on this yesterday, um, how to, I don't remember the exact title, but how to understand the the riots in Chicago from a biblical perspective. Um, I can say that we are, um, we're all safe right now, which is good. Uh, actually, um, my family's out of the city right now. Um, so, uh, but we did that just because we weren't sure how things were go gonna go down. Uh, the downtown area, I haven't been down there since the riots started. Um, I've got a friend who has, and it's, it's pretty, I've seen pictures. It's pretty rough. A lot of the places I know and, and love down there are, uh, have been looted. Um, there's a lot of destruction. Um, I think you've got sort of just like everywhere, you've got a lot of different factors at play. You've got some people who are genuinely hurting, genuinely looking for justice to them. I say more power to them. Uh, then you've got, um, just people who are greedy, just out mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, to loot and, and, um, fill that emptiness inside with possessions. Mm -hmm. And then you've got um, people who are looking to co-opt this for their own uh, probably revolutionary goals. And so um, 
you know, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to be a, a voice for the gospel in Chicago. We're trying to, you know, reach out to people that we know around the city and make sure that they're they're okay and, and offer biblical wisdom and guidance as much as possible uh, while keeping ourselves safe. So mm-hmm. um, I think in my area, I think it's probably, I'm, I'm, we're not in downtown, we're outside of downtown a little bit, uh, still within city limits, but it's been, there's been some looting, uh, some protesting, but uh, for the most part, uh, everybody's safe. I think there's, there were a few shots fired the other day, but I think for the most part, mm-hmm. folks are doing okay. Yeah, it's really unprecedented times and it's just kind of, feels like we're almost living through a movie in some senses. Uh, But now, yeah, so some complex times, but I also have a complex topic I'd love to talk with you today. We're going to be talking about some Calvinism stuff. You are the heir to John Calvin now. You are going to represent Calvinism for the next about 40 minutes or so. So (laughs) (laughs) no pressure. Uh, So just to start off, can you just talk about, for someone who has never heard the word Calvinism before someone who has no idea what the doctrine of Calvinism is, what in a, in a sense, what is Calvinism? Okay. So Zach, I, let me get it. Let me get a disclaimer out there just from the get go. There are some apologists who are, who deal a lot with soteriology. Uh, James White is one who, um, did he make it to the finals of the 2020? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, did. he did. Okay. So uh, James White is one, who talks a lot about Calvinism. Um, someone like William Lane Craig, or um, uh, there are other Christian apologists who who deal you know, more on the other side, William Lane Craig being more Arminian. I am not one of those guys. I've got, uh, I'm, I, we have people supporting our ministry who are Calvinist, uh, probably some Arminians, probably people in between. Um, and actually, uh, I was just talking with a uh, dear brother, good buddy of mine, who's in my discipleship cohort, um, th- which is called the Hammer and Anvil Society. You know, Hammer, Anvil, Iron Sharpens Iron, mm-hmm. see that? Um, and uh, he's he's not an Arminian, but he's somewhere more on that end of the spectrum. Uh, and he and I were just going at this on Wednesday night, and, um, you know, uh, we ended the conversation obviously as brothers, obviously still as friends, still as co-laborers in the gospel. So I want to give the disclaimer out front that if you believe the biblical gospel, if you if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross for sinners, he was buried, he rose again, and now he reigns, and everyone who repents and trusts in him will be saved. I don't care if you're Calvin, Arminian, uh, uh, Molinist, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me, you're, you're a brother, you're a sister. That being said, we do want to be as biblical as we can because one of the ways that we love God is by knowing God. And so um, I have settled on the soteriology known as Calvinism, for lack of a better word. And um, that does not mean that I follow John Calvin instead of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you hear that thrown out there. That's, uh, you know, it's not accurate. Um uh, I was trying to think of a comparison there, but, but, you know, we'll just leave it at that. But, um, the, the Calvinism, Calvinism is at bottom, it's really a soteriology, which means a, a point of view, a theology of how people are saved. And it gets into what is the human condition and how is that human condition resolved? What's wrong with us and how, how is it to be fixed? Um, there are other implications in there as well, but that's really when we're talking about soteriology, the word comes from uh, soter, which means um, save, 
to, to save. So tarot. So, okay. So what is, um, what is Calvinism? Well, it, it is the historical view of the folks who were known as the reformers. Um, 500 years ago, as of 2017, so back in 20, in uh, 1517, there was a movement away from the Catholic Church by a group of people known as reformers. And this is where pro modern day Protest Protestantism comes from. Um, and they held the view, uh, they, had, they held certain views about um, the condition of human beings and um, how uh, how man stands before God, man's uh, man's ability or really lack thereof to right his wrongs before God, his or her wrongs before God, and um, and how a person can be saved. Well, um, after after the Reformation, or, or really in the late stages of the Reformation, there was a a movement um, away from that historical Reformed position, sort of back toward the traditionally Roman Catholic position. And the people who took that step back toward Rome, so to speak, uh, became known as Arminians. Um, they, they followed uh, a brother named uh, Jacob Arminius, and they identified five key points of doctrine where they disagreed with the Reformed uh, Reformers, the, the Reformers what we now call Calvinists. And um, so it's kind of funny because today people talk about five points of Calvinism. But really it was Arminians who articulated the five points, we might call them five points of Arminianism. And the Calvinist perspective was a response to that, sort of a, a denial of those five Arminian points and an affirmation of what they believe to be the biblical perspective. So... Um, if that's not a long enough uh, a prelude to, to all this, let me get into what the five points are. <laughs> so the, the five points in English spell out TULIP. And um, so T-U-L-I-P. And those five, so it's an acronym. And, and so you got the T, which stands for total depravity. The U, which stands for unconditional election. The L, which stands for limited atonement. And I do take issue with that term. I'll, I can explain why as we talk. Um, the... I, which stands for irresistible grace, and then the P, which stands for uh, the perseverance of the saints. And so um, happy to get into each of those uh, wherever you want to take this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we'll have time to get into everything because unfortunately we only have about 40 minutes when this could be like a 12-hour conversation. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and I guess that's just the disadvantage of time. But I guess we'll just start off with what kind of led you towards Calvinism? Like what were kind of the things that were like, were you always a Calvinist? Was there a time in your life where you, uh, I don't want to say converted, but when you kind of like adopted the Calvinist theology, like what was your, what's your story that led you to Calvinism? Um, well, so good question. So I was, um, I wasn't raised Calvinist um, or Arminian. I was raised in an evangelical free church, which is a denomination that does not take a hard stance one way or the other or in the middle. And so um, I never really heard about Calvinism until much later, until really uh, probably undergrad, um, which is kind of funny. But I, um, you know, the questions that we sort of wrestled with as I grew up were more like, can you lose your salvation? Which is a very hot 
question. It's, I think, a very live question in the church today. And um, so I didn't know when I was asking that question back in high school, I didn't know I was dealing with the fifth point of Calvinism, the perseverance of the saints. I was just wondering, could I possibly lose my salvation? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being in college. I went to a, um, a, a Presbyterian college for undergrad in Pennsylvania, which I know you're from Pennsylvania. Yeah. Right? You're from State College? <laughs> yes, sir. Very State College, cool. PA. So I went to Grove City College, which is oh, okay. about an hour north of Pittsburgh. You familiar yeah. with it? Um, yeah. I'm, I know a lot of people that go there. So. Hmm. <laughs> Excellent. Very cool. It's a good school for every. I mean, I ended up going somewhere else, but I've heard it's a very good school. So Yes, it is. Very, very good school. Um, but I remember being in the freshman dorms. And I remember um, there were you know, a couple, a couple guys in me and, you know, freshman year in, in college, um, nobody wants to go to bed. Everybody's getting to know each other. So we were all hanging out in the dorms and talking philosophy, talking theology. I don't even know if we could have told you we were talking theology, if we knew that term, but we, we were talking about, you know, the things of God and what, what does the Bible teach? And I remember these, these brothers coming down real hard on the side of God's sovereignty and predestination. And that was another way that the debate was often phrased, predestination versus free will. And at that point, I was really much more on the side of free will. Again, I didn't have deep philosophical understanding of what that meant, but yeah, of course we have free will. I make decisions all the time. And these guys were telling me, no, 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 we're predestined, which is why I love you You, uh, you titled this, uh, you know, did God, did God predestined this conversation this interview. Um, so, but these guys, these guys would have said, yes, God, God predestined that. And so, um, I, I grew up asking the questions, but I didn't have the terminology to explain them. And, and, um, so as I grew, I don't remember exactly when these terms started to really enter into my own personal lexicon, but I remember, um, I, I do remember when I was about 24, um, this is when the rubber really hit the road for me. So I was actually teaching at a Christian school in Chicago in the near, near Southwest side of the city. And, um, I was going through a, a difficult time spiritually. And there was an older brother, Puerto Rican brother who, uh, took me under his wing. And, um, this dear brother brought me into his classroom, which is adjacent to mine. And I was really wrestling existentially in my walk uh, with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And he opened up Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. And he just said, read this. His name is Hector. He said, just read this. And as I'm, I'm starting to read through it, it was like, I saw the sovereignty of God and God's love for me and God's care for me in a way that I had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had come to a point at that stage in my life where I believed, I actually believed in predestination. I believed in God's sovereignty, but I had, I had gone, I, I had actually almost reached the point where I, I thought, you know, God is sovereign over my life, but his, he can do whatever he wants. And maybe that's to hurt me in the end. Maybe this isn't, maybe God's plan is actually not that good for me. Um, so some really, um, some really, painful ways of thinking some really, uh, you know, now I look back and see that they're unbiblical ways of thinking, but I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, there I am, I'm reading Ephesians one and I'm pouring over it. And, you know, I'm reading things like blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And it just continues on and on and on. And it's just... um it just hit me with this richness and this depth that I needed at that exact moment. Now, I didn't, I didn't become a Calvinist at that exact point in time, but I did the next year. Um, I did, that was about 2009. The next year I did go to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I took a, um, I took a systematic theology class. And uh, for those who don't know, seminary is grad school for pastors. I, I, was, I wasn't going to be a pastor, although I eventually became a pastor. I was going to go <laughs> into academia. But um, I remember sitting in my class, and this class was being taught by an Arminian, a vowed Arminian. And he was, um, he was teaching on the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. Mm. And I remember specifically there was a particular example he gave about what Calvinism is like. And he, he alluded to it being like a dad who locks his kids in a treehouse, sets it on fire, and they're burning, and he won't go help them, but he, he rescues like one. And I don't know if you've ever heard that uh, analogy before, but um, I, it struck me as like pretty ludicrous because I'm like, well, I know that's not what God is like, but then, then he started... So I said, well, I know that's not what God is like. So then he's teaching on... Um, then he, he's going more in depth on Calvinism and he's speaking about something called compatibilism, which talks about how man, man's free and responsible choices are compatible with God's sovereignty. And as I'm listening, I'm realizing I didn't know that was Calvinism. I just thought I, I just, I'm listening and I'm like, well, that's, that's biblical. That's, I raised my hand even. I said, well, that's, I believe that. What's that? And, and I could tell he wasn't happy with me saying that I, <laughs> I believe that. And he tried to, you know, kind of explain more the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. And the more he explained it, the more I realized that Calvinism was what the Bible taught and Arminianism was not. And mm. um, it was still probably about a year later that I started calling myself a Calvinist, even though I, um, I would say I was probably convinced earlier. But it came through um, uh, studying passages like Romans 9, studying passages like Genesis 50, 20, John 6. And then, honestly, at the same time, a lot of the pastors I started listening to, this was during the days, the early days of like the Young Restless Reform Movement about 10 years ago. I started listening to John Piper and Matt Chandler and Mark Driscoll and all these pastors Ooh. who were making such a huge impact for the gospel, but who were operating out of a Calvinist mindset. And I started attending a church uh, a little prior to that that was not avowedly Calvinist, but was teaching the what we call the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. I didn't know I was getting Calvinism at the time. Um, but all those things sort of collided together um, until about, let's say, 2014, somewhere in there, maybe 2015. Um, I was talking with my wife, about something I'd seen online. And I said, you know, babe, uh, uh, look, look what this guy is saying. You know, we Calvinists, uh, you know, we, this, we believe this and that. And she goes, what? I said, what, 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 what? And she goes, you just said we Calvinists. <laughs> I said, oh yeah, I guess I did. Have I never said that before? She goes, no, you've never called yourself a Calvinist before. I said, oh, I guess I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's sort of like the personal journey. I mean, that's not, Obviously, I haven't gotten into all the 
the, uh, the the biblical support, but that's just sort of my journey, which I think was your question. You know, how did I, how did I, how did I personally get there? Yeah, I think it's a great kind of like story. Yeah, Uh, we probably won't go too much into biblical support. We'll kind of look at some common objections. It's funny because I can, I mean, at the moment, I'm not a Calvinist, but I can relate to your story where uh, I go, I come into my first year of college and I never really seriously have considered Calvinism before probably this fall. And I'm like, now I'm like considering it. And I don't don't know where I'm going to end up. I mean, I'm a Christian. But I mean, it's definitely interesting to study, um, and I love hearing your story. So I think the burning question on everyone's mind uh, because of this video title is, did God predestine this interview? So I'm curious, what what are your thoughts on that question? Did God predestine this interview? And if so, what does that look like? Uh, well, yeah, good question. So um uh, the answer is yes. God did predestine this interview, um, biblically speaking. Um, the Bible says now. There's a couple of different ways we could approach this act. So the Bible, the Bible talks about like you know, for example, in Romans eight twenty eight through thirty nine. There's this great, great passage on um, on predestination. It talks about how those God foreknew, He also predestined, and it it it, it goes on. Um, well, it, it expounds on what we call the biblical or the um, the golden chain of redemption, uh, from predestination or from fore, foreknowledge to predestination to calling to uh, justifying. I don't think is in there, but it's it's assumed uh, sanctifying and then um, glorification. And it says the reason God did all this was to conform us into the image of His Son. Mm-hmm. So God's predestinating plan is for you and I as believers to be more conformed into the image of his son. So to the extent that this interview conforms either of us into the image of Jesus Christ, it was absolutely predestined. It's part of that process. Um, but let's say the interview goes really, really bad. Let's say, let's say, uh, you know, one of us straight up apostatizes and, and uh, <laughs> reveals that we are uh, evil at heart. Well, Proverbs 16, 4 says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So yeah. even if it were to go terribly, Zach, uh, <laughs> even then that would still be predestined by God. And so um, yes, we believe that God is perfectly sovereign over all things. He works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And um, as believers, we we aren't always in perfect lockstep with that will. All too often we're not. But we're supposed to have our minds conformed to the to um, to, to to Christ and uh, we're, we're supposed to follow his good, pleasing and perfect will. So it's our job to figure out what that will is using scripture and and uh, so, that's again a long-winded way of saying yes. I I absolutely believe. <laughs> well, what do you think? Do you think God predestined this interview? I don't know. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> I mean, if if he did, I'm hoping that it, he predestined it to be on kind of the good end. I'd prefer the yes, not to have yes. the whole apostatizing stuff. But yeah, I mean, same here, same here. We'll see what happens. We still got 30 more minutes. Uh, funny That's comment true. from Ellie Elohim as we continue. She says, uh, "Nope, that is not the funny comment." She said. No, don't do it. Referring to me converting uh, or adopting Calvinism. So <laughs> let's see. Let's see what happens. Uh, so let's kind of look at some kind of like common things that uh, people question about Calvinists. Like these are kind of things where I'm like, where I grew up uh, before I researched Calvinism. It's kind of like, you know, but Calvinists, if Calvinism is true, then X is true. And we don't want X, uh, things like that. So the first thing I'd love to talk with you about is this idea of, First off, uh, as a Calvinist, do you, this is an like, uh, introduction question. Do you believe in like 
free will of any sort, like any sort of libertarian freedom for humans? Uh, good question. There's actually, you just asked uh, two questions. I'm not sure if mm -hmm. you realize it, but you asked if I believe in any kind of free free will, and then you asked if I believe in libertarian freedom. Yeah. And those two things are, are uh, not the same. So um, uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, uh, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but it was something along the lines of, um, I've never seen free will. I've seen um, wills that were basically operating out of their natures, but I've never seen one that was completely and totally free. Mm. So now, um, I think the question everybody wants to know is, are we robots? Mm -hmm. I think that's, and, and it's such a good question because, well, we want to know that. We want to know if, if it only seems like we have the ability to choose or, or if God is somehow tricking us. And if God's tricking us, well, then that actually seems immoral, doesn't it? Because mm. we have the illusion of free will freedom and, and choice and responsibility, but, but not actually, we don't actually possess it. And, and that would actually seem like God's lying to us. So what's going on here? And, and aren't Calvinists denying something we all intrinsically know to be true? Well, the, the, I mentioned something earlier called compatibilism. Compatibilism is a belief that's in line with Calvinism, with, with scripture, I would say, but it's the belief that God is perfectly sovereign and man is um, man's choices are real and man is responsible for his choices. Let me give you an example of where scripture teaches this. In the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20. And I'm actually, I'm going to pull this up. Um, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. If you're familiar with the story, uh, Joseph, not the father of Jesus, but Joseph, the um, one of the, the patriarchs, uh, the one of the sons of Jacob, of Israel, he has risen to power in Egypt after his 11 brothers sold him into slavery. And he was put through all kinds of evil circumstances. We get to the end of the book of Genesis. And Joseph's brothers, well, their dad has just died. And they're worried now that because Jacob is out of the picture, Joseph is going to get retribution on them and vengeance and basically rake them over the coals. And guess what? He has the power to do that now. So these guys are shaking in their sandals, uh, so terrified that Joseph's going to hurt them. So Joseph, in verse 19 of G Genesis 50, says this, Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I, or for am I in the place of God? As for you, now get this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Mm. So you've got two choices being attributed to one action. The brothers actually did choose to put Joseph in that hole to sell him to the Ishmaelites. At the exact same time, God was choosing to allow that evil action to happen. God was not sinning, but God was allowing an evil action to happen. He meant it to happen. He wanted it to happen. And the reason why, it says, uh, if you continue in verse 20, it says, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And you know, this is the exact, this isn't just an Old Testament doctrine. Because when you go to um, the New Testament, um, let me just pull this up. In the book of Acts, to do whatever. Okay, uh, so you've got uh, the Apostle Peter, he's preaching. And um, 
he's calling out, I think it's Acts 4. Yes, here, uh, okay, in Acts chapter 4, verse, verse um, 27, I think this is it. Uh, ah, yes, okay, so Peter is praying. Here's what he says, and he's, he's quoting Psalm 110, or Psalm 2. I always get those confused. And he says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. In fact, this is the very city where Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired with the Gentiles and the people of Israel against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They carried out what your hand and will had decided beforehand would happen. So, again, it's the exact same thing that, that uh, Joseph was talking about. Herod, Pontius Pilate, conspiring with the Gentiles and with the Israelites. Everybody here is working together, freely using their wills, freely exercising their God-given choice. And what are they doing? Because they're sinners, they're sinning. They're, it's evil. They're, they're conspiring against the one truly innocent person who ever lived. And here you've got the, the ultimate unjust death. You know, people are protesting in the streets right now because of an unjust death. Here you have the, the truly most unjust death that ever occurred. An innocent man killed at the hands of evil conspirators. And yet, according to Peter, they carried out what God's hand and his will had decided beforehand would happen. So it's like, okay, who's responsible for Christ's death? Well, Pontius Pilate, the Israelites, uh, the Gentiles, and Herod, right? Yeah, absolutely. And who else is responsible? God. No, no, no. You can't say God's... It says it right here. It says God's responsible. If, if God's not responsible for the death of Christ, then, then get rid of Isaiah chapter 53. Get rid of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Get rid of Psalm 22. Get rid of um, all the Old Testament prophecies, which predict exactly how Jesus would die. You know, um, Moses did not kill Jesus, but Moses predicted it in Genesis chapter 3. David did not kill Jesus, but David predicted it in Psalm 22. So how are these guys able to predict something that happened ahead of time after their, or that happened much later after they're long gone? It's because God carried it out. God saw to it that it was accomplished, but God used evil people acting evilly to do it. And it's like, well, how could God do that? That doesn't seem right. God is so good. God is so perfect that not only can he use good people to accomplish good things, but he can use evil people. That's how good God is. Mm. And it's like, well, thank God, because if God could only use good people, then Zach, you and I are out of the equation at that point, right? Because, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're in trouble. That's right, because we're not good. We're sinful. And so um, so if, God, if, God, if God's not sovereign, even over evil, then we're all in a lot of trouble. But thankfully, the Bible says he is. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really good uh, explanation. So I think it might be helpful here. Uh, let's just sum it up. So let's just say uh, for for a 10-year-old, uh, I don't know how old your kids are. I'm 19. I obviously don't have kids. But let's say, I don't know how, let's just say your kid's 10 years old and she says, or he says, um, Dad, are we robots? Uh, how, how do you answer that? If you just have like 30 seconds, a minute, very simple. Sure. How, how do you answer that? Okay, good question. No, we're not robots. We make decisions based on what we want to do. And what we want to do comes from our hearts. Before Jesus changes our hearts, we want to sin, to disobey God, hurt ourselves, and do what's wrong for ourselves. But when Jesus Christ changes our hearts, he gives us a desire to do what is right. And mm -hmm. as it turns out, whether we do good or evil, 
God's plan is to make everything turn out right. We can thank God that he's in perfect control no matter what happens. Mm. Great stuff. Great stuff. Uh, let's move on here. I have another question for you. Obviously, I sent you a bunch of questions beforehand. We're not yes. going to get through all those questions. I'll Which try to keep my answers uh, a lot shorter. <laughs> no, it's totally fine because I'd rather have very thorough, uh, solid answers than just like broadly flying over some stuff. So, cool. yeah. Uh, next question here. If God uh, elects people to salvation and reprobates people to hell, uh, why isn't everyone saved? Like, it seems like if God uh chooses uh who's i mean someone just looking at it from like a non-calvinist perspective if god chooses who goes to heaven and hell and if we see god as all loving why wouldn't he just choose everyone to go to heaven why would he create someone just to go to hell so obviously there's a few questions in there um i don't know what you want to start off addressing with but what's kind of your thoughts on that idea that's a great question. And let's just back up a second and say this is a question that everyone has to answer, whether you're Calvinist, Arminian, or, or otherwise. Um, let's say you're an, you're an Arminian who adopts sort of a Molinist perspective, which is um, very, very briefly, God actuates a world in which the maximal number of people can be saved or something like that. Um, what you end up doing is in, in a situation like that, you've got God responding to a situation that um, is outside of his hands. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over all things. So, um, uh, or let's say you take a more simple Arminian view that says God elects those who would choose him. He looks down the corridors of time. This is how it was taught to me in seminary. God looks down the corridors of time and sees who would choose him and who wouldn't, and then elects those people. The problem with that is those people hadn't been created yet. So God is the one creating them. So God doesn't need to look down the corridors of time and see what you'll be like. God created you. God created me. God determines what we will be like. Um, that's part of what it means to have authority is to be the author. And so God, um, and we see this in Acts chapter 17, where it says that from one man, God created all the nations of earth and, and set them in the, their appointed times and, and places. So God is fully sovereign over that. Um, the, uh, the biblical answer actually comes from Romans 9. Uh, what we have to understand is um, God can do whatever. The, the first thing we have to say, and this is going to sound a little blunt, but I think it's biblical. I know it's biblical. God can do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. God doesn't owe anybody anything. Now, that's going to sound harsh because we're used to hearing that from sinful humanity. And it's like, if a sinful person stands up and goes... I do whatever I want. You can't stop me. You know what I'm saying? Then you look at that person and be like, hey, jackass, like you're not, you're not, uh, you know, you can't do whatever you want. That's not, that's not right. That's not moral. But God is by definition good. So when the Bible says he can do whatever he wants, that he is sovereign, what that means is nothing can stop him from doing what is absolutely perfectly good and right. So we should actually be thanking God that he's perfectly sovereign and that he can do whatever he wants and that he doesn't owe sinful people like us anything. So what the Bible says is this. Um, in Romans 9, verse 19. Uh, actually, let me back up here. Uh, let me look at uh, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is really the question. Is God unjust for sending some people to hell and other people to heaven and only choosing some? The Apostle Paul says, by no means. In the Greek, that's meganoita. It means uh, it's it's the strong. Think of the strongest way in English to say no. Yeah, I actually shouldn't say it because this is a Christian program. All right, 
But that's what Paul is saying. Absolutely not. There is not injustice on God's part. Verse 15, Mm -hmm. for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, what human beings need is, is not fairness, not justice, but mercy. If we got justice, we would all go to hell. The fact that God saves anyone is only because of his mercy. So, again, we're not puppets. We're not robots. The Bible does not teach that. And the implication of that is that because of our sin, we actually are responsible for that. We actually deserve hell. Zach, you and I deserve hell, mm-hmm. man. So, if if we're saved, it's only because of God's grace. Now, if if someone wants to come to God and say, well, how, how come you saved him but not me? The answer to that is repent, believe in Jesus Christ. You'll be saved too. And if they say, oh, okay, I repent. I trust in Christ. Boom, they're saved as well. Okay. If they say, well, no, I would never want to worship a God like that. Well, okay, but you don't want to be with God for eternity. You hate God. You, you, don't, you don't love God. Why would you want to be with a God like that for all eternity? He's giving you what you want. So God is perfectly fair in who goes to hell. And there is no injustice on, on God's part. And God is perfectly merciful for saving people who, who deserve his judgment. Um, now, as to why does God allow some people not to be saved, verse 17 in chapter 9 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul's answer is just absolutely brilliant. Because I've asked that countless times in my life, right? Paul just goes, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Like, who who wants to know? For will what is molded say to its, make, to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from among the, also from the Gentiles? So... Um, God has his, his perfectly good reasons. He wants to make his glory known. He wants to show, uh, he wants to righteously punish sin and mercifully save those who come to him. And God's worked it into his plan that, um, that both take place. We might not like that. We might say, well, God, uh, if I were you, I would have saved everybody to, you know, and to that God just says, well, who the heck are you? You know, you're, you're part of the same lump of sinful, like that's one thing we don't, we have to understand is the lump of clay is, is sinful. It's the, the whole lump of clay should all be pitched in the, the trash. You know what I'm like? I mean, if we really got what we deserve and we don't understand our own sin, man, like the very fact that we want to challenge God on this means we don't appreciate, and I'm not throwing people under the bus. I, I, I I've asked these questions myself. I, I get it. it. It's a very good question. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not haranguing people for asking these questions, but we have to see ourselves with humility before God. And um, so I think that that maybe begins to answer the question, hopefully at least a little bit. 
Yeah, I think it's good. Um, I have a follow-up question, but before that, I think you bring up a really good point, uh, something I thought about that regardless of what the answer uh, to this question and some of these questions are, God is God, God is sovereign, God knows a lot more than we know. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in, I don't remember what chapters in Job, but towards the end of Job where there's a couple of chapters where Job's been complaining to God and that God just kind of like sets him straight. And it's like, you know, I kind of, when I'm struggling with things, that's, where I go because it just helps me realize, you know, God's in control. Uh, but so a question I have for you here is um, we talked a little bit about the idea that God kind of, he reprobates in a Calvinistic framework um, or rich people to hell. So Ellen, in the chat, this is kind of a question I was already thinking of. Um, she quotes a verse uh, in first Timothy. And I think this might, I love the mug, by the way, um, mm. this might, this might go into the, <laughs> this may go to, into the doctrine of atonement, but she quotes a verse in First Timothy 2, 3, 4, 4, where it says that, um, I'm sure you're probably familiar with it, where it says that God desires for all people to be saved. I'll just read it while you find it. Uh, it says, this is good and, and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I think a question for you is if God desires all people to be saved, then why would he reprobate? Like, mm -hmm. I, I think, yeah. Yes. Give me the um, give me the reference one more time. First Timothy. First Timothy two, three for four. Two, three through four. Three. Yeah, you're good. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. So. All right. So the the passage. So first of all, let me let me start out by saying. Um, I completely hear that that question. It's an excellent, excellent question. Um, and just earlier in the passage, so scripture always interprets scripture. The first thing we have to do is look at a passage in its context. And just earlier in the passage, Paul has said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he immediately delineates what he means by all people, for kings and those who are in high positions. Now, he's, um, he's speaking here. He's, Paul is sort of trumping some of our expectations here. So he's saying, look, don't just pray for believers or your friends. Pray for people in authority. Yeah. Pray, for, pray for people you wouldn't necessarily expect to pray for um, so that we can live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, if God desires, so uh, on the on the surface of this passage, if this passage is saying God literally wants every person on earth who has ever lived to be saved then the question we need to ask is, has God failed in his desire, in his plan? Because if that's what this passage means, that God literally desires everyone to be saved, then, well, and I, there's only two ways to go. Either you're going to say, well, yes, and, and everyone is going to be saved. Everyone, everyone will be saved in the end. And at that point, you're now entering into what's called universalism. God literally will save everyone in the end. And the Bible just doesn't give us that, um, that ability. I actually did a whole two-part uh, podcast episode on universalism. Um, 
So there's one of the ways of understanding this passage is that uh, God desires all kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles, um, rulers, non-rulers, to be saved. Uh, that God is, um, God is going to, God's, God's uh, pre predestinating grace is not just for my little in-group, my little holy huddle, my local church, but it's for everyone. Uh, it's for every, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people group. For example, we see that in the book of Revelation. Um, but if God's, when you, when you um, interpret this passage in light of the full breadth of scripture, like for example, Romans 9, we do see that there are some who God hardens and some God shows mercy to. And so um, the way I understand this passage personally, and again, I don't, I don't claim to be the exact, uh, I, I don't claim to, let me say this, I'm, I'm happy to have this interpretation proven wrong, but I'm trying to interpret it in light of all of scripture. The way I understand mm -hmm. this passage is, is like this. God, God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. God, God has decreed that the gospel go forth into all the world so that all the world has the offer of salvation presented to them. It's a happier thing when someone is saved than when someone is destroyed because of their sin. And yet, God's plan, his decree, does not include for all of that to happen. It doesn't, it doesn't include every individual to be saved, because in Romans 9, it specifically says that he hardens some and he, and he saves some. He has mercy on some. And again, we might not like that, but who are we to answer back to God? And so, in Scripture, when you see a passage like, like this that says all there, there's another passage i believe in first john that says he's the propitiation for our sins and not only ours but also the whole world um, and sometimes people use that and they say ah so uh so that that must mean that everyone um is going to be saved or, or christ died for every living person on earth or every person who will ever live but in context what john is talking about there is not only for our particular group but also uh, also for the elect all over the world. And so my understanding of this passage is that he is referring to a group that is um, inclusive, not only of the, not only of Timothy's group, but also of, uh, of an expansive and um, diverse group the world over. And I'm sorry, as I'm, if it sounds like I'm starting and stopping, I'm, I'm, I'm watching you. I know you've got other comments coming in. So in my mind, I'm trying to anticipate what are going to be the objections to this. And I just, I also just looked at, uh, this is how my mind works. I'm always thinking, okay, how is someone going to object to that? So I'm, 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 I'm anticipating objections and trying to respond to them as I speak. Um, but in verse seven of that same passage, it says, for this, I was appointed to a, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Um, so he's talking here about, about a group of people that are, it's beyond just the holy huddle that uh, is within the pastorate of Timothy, um, his local church, but it includes a group of people the world over. Mm. Yeah, I think that's uh, good stuff. Obviously, we could go into this for days and days and days, but unfortunately, we are starting to close down on time. Yes. Uh, I kind of have a question, not 
didn't send you this. Going to surprise you here. Okay. Uh, kind of a lighthearted, fun question. Um, you've been messaging me about how you're going to win the 2020, 20, the 2021 Christian Apologist March Madness tournament. And I mean, I had to dig up a little bit of history here, and it looks like last year you lost uh, in the first round to Evan Mitten. So how? How? Tell me. Tell me. What is? How are you going to make this comeback from a first round exit to a championship? Okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's, that's a good question. I'm still, I'm stuck on this passage in, in first Timothy. I'm reading, I'm reading my commentary right now. Um, it was a very okay. quick transition on my part. It was good. It was good. Look, let me give one more note on this because I really like what this commentary said. And I feel like I, I feel like I hemmed and hawed my way through that question. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to read what this says. And I think I agree with this. Calvinists hold that God's greater desire is to display the full range of his glory, Romans 9, 22 and 23, which is what we were just talking about, which results in election depending on the freedom of his mercy and not upon human choice, Romans 9, 15 through 18. However, one understands the extent of the atonement. This passage clearly teaches the free and universal offer of the gospel to every single human being. Desires shows that this offer is a bona fide expression of God's good will. Um, so in other words, uh, God's, God's delight is when, is in the gospel being preached to everyone. He wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, so it's an expression of the church's mission that we are to preach the gospel to everyone. So now how am I going to win 2020? Uh, first of all, listen, dude, I got to tell you something. I got to tell you something. So I've got a buddy and I'm just going to, I'm going to mention him by name because I, I don't know if he'll listen to this or not. But I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm about to interview you next, you know, for my podcast. And I'm going to bring uh-huh. this up. I've got a buddy of mine, KJ Johnson. He's the Chicago director for the C.S. Lewis Institute. Huh. And um, KJ and I went to seminary together. We both got uh, master's in philosophy of religion together. He, um, he, he called out the, the tournament, the 20, the uh, March Madness tournament as uh, something that is uh, potentially has the ability to stoke people's pride and ego. So Zach, yeah. Zach, <laughs> this I don't know. I don't know if I can. If I I don't I, I'm I'm conflicted now, man. Because what I love about the tournament is that it. Um, I've learned about a lot of different apologists through the you know like it's very encouraging to me to find out there's over 400 brothers and sisters in Christ out there commending and defending the truth of the Christian message. But, uh, but I don't know, dude, I don't know if I can, if I can say, here's how I'm going to win because legitimately I'm concerned about my own pride here. Mm. So, so here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. If it's God's will, if God has predestined me, to win, <laughs> I know where this then, is going, then, then may I win to the glory of, of God, uh, to the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation of many souls. Uh, but if not, I humbly accept that. And, uh, dude, I'm just glad to see, le- legitimately speaking now, Zach, I'm very glad to see so many Christians who are out there advocating for the truth of the Christian mm-hmm. message. And mm-hmm. and in all seriousness, I really don't want to advocate for myself because the last guy that I went up against, I never heard of him before, but I went and checked out his work. The dude is a legit Bible scholar. Like, a le- he's, he's a legit force um out there and it's like man 
this guy should totally win. You know, I'm just some I'm just some schmo out here in Chicago trying to tell people about Jesus. This guy is a legit Bible scholar. So I say whoever I get put up against, look, vote. I'll say this. Vote for the other guy, but come over to the Think.Institute and check out the work we're doing. Subscribe to our podcast because I'd much rather have you use our tools to um, equip yourself to share the gospel and to get the good word out there than I would to uh, puff up my own uh, uh, ego. I guess. So that's, I'm going to leave it at that, Zach. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> I got to say, I, I should have saw that coming. I, um, <laughs> so we're obviously, we're going to wrap up here. I think you did a good job. Of, I was going to ask you to plug your stuff, but I think you did that. Uh, for anyone who's listening and wants to transition, because we're actually here at 4.30 uh, Eastern Daylight Time, Joel, we're going to turn the tables. Instead of me grilling Joel, Joel's going to grill me. So if people want to follow uh, not only that interview, but your stuff, where should they go? So thank you for asking. You can go to thethink.institute. And um, I mean, I, I host the Think Podcast. We do five episodes a week. Um, probably your folks would be most interested in our Tuesday twofer episodes, which is what I'm about to uh, host with you. I'm about to interview you on there. That's where we have two thinkers for the price of one. And that's, that's where we, uh, we interview different guys, or sometimes I'll respond to a different thinker. But, um, but you can, you can go to the think.institute slash podcast. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on parlor P A R L E R, which is like one of these new alternative social media, sort of like a, an alternative to Twitter. I'm basically on there in case they ever ban me from Twitter. But, um, but yeah, I'm on, I'm on all those things. Check us out on YouTube too. I need more YouTube videos, uh, mm -hmm. more YouTube subscribers are, are subscribe. We get a ton of views on Facebook and not many on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, check us out on there. But um, yeah, the important thing is get involved with apologetics and get out there sharing your faith, especially at times like this. People need it, man. People need to hear the gospel. People need to know that Christianity is true. I mean, if they become Calvinists, great. But I'd much rather have them repent of their sins and find forgiveness yes. and uh, and peace through Jesus Christ. That is what it's all about. And Zach, I know you agree with that as well. Amen. Yeah, totally. Thank you for coming on. I'm excited to come on your show in just a few minutes. So if people listening now want to watch that, it's the Think Institute on Facebook. Is that where to look for it? Yeah, if you go to um, at the Think Institute on Facebook, all one word, we're on there. Um, if I think if you just search for the Think Institute, I think there's there's two profiles that'll come up and we're the we're the page that's got a gold and blue logo with a book. Mm, there you go. Got the book. Makes you makes it for appreciate you, Joel. Great interview. Thanks, man. Looking forward to still talking to you here. This is not the end, but I appreciate Looking it. Forward to it. I'm Zach that said here in Apologetics. I'm with Joel Sedicase, and we will